so we're going to look at that today. We'll answer some questions, um, talk through some things, and hopefully make you think. And if you're a believer, make you really, make you more thankful today than you walked in because of your relationship with Christ. Paul Williamson uh, records in his book, he recorded a uh, results from a poll. In his book, Death in the Afterlife, from a poll taken in 2011, there are three general common, we would understand, general positions taken that people take on death in the afterlife. About a quarter of people, 23% of people, are skeptics. They believe that death is simply the permanent cessation of all of our vital functions, therefore terminating, just really terminating our existence. You just die, and that's it. There's nothing left. Another quarter of our society, 26%, believe that, or they call themselves agnostic. Basically, they just don't think we can really know or they don't really, uh, really sure what happens after death, what happens to the body, what happens to the soul. So they're just agnostic. They're not really sure. But then there's the majority of folks to which we would belong to that position. Well, I would assume most of us would belong to that position in this position, and that is that there is some form of life after death. But in this camp, there's even some differences as to what that really looks like. For some, you just turn into an angel. Now, I know some of you, and I know that's not true. Some of you are just not going to turn into an angel, right? Then for some other people, there's reincarnation, some sort of recycle. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. And then there's yet for others who believe that after death is heaven. But even those that believe in heaven have a different concept of what heaven will be. For some, it's like us, it's eternal presence with Jesus forever. We don't know much, much more about that than what we'll do on that new heaven and new earth. But, and yet for others, it's, they just interpret heaven as nothing more than an eternal vacation at some sort of celestial resort. I personally believe the old evangelist is right when he said, you have to live somewhere forever. Well, what do you believe? Have you thought about the afterlife? And today we're going to look at the Christian or biblical perspective teaching that we see from this text that starts addressing this idea of the afterlife. Now, let me say, for those that are perhaps watching online or listening, if you don't believe in some sort of afterlife, Ask yourself this question. Why is it that you have, if, again, if you don't believe in afterlife, if you're, if you're not really sure about it, if you're maybe a part of that agnostic group too, why is it that you have this internal desire inside of you for ultimate satisfaction, value, and personal worth and meaning in life? I mean, we're all looking for it. Some of us find it in a variety of different games we could play, or hobbies, or traveling, or toys, or cars, or all sorts of different things. But obviously we know that that does not scratch that itch that we have for ultimate satisfaction and value and worth. It's not tied to the physical world. And we know that because we can't satisfy it with the physical world. I mean, you've tried. If then there exists this immaterial part of you, not tied to the material. I mean, you can't touch it, you can't hold it, you can't talk to it like and it talks back. Then what happens to that part of you when you die? 
I mean, you know they're not fully connected, that immaterial and that material part of you. You know they're not fully connected. So what, what happens to that immaterial part of you then? Have you ever thought about that? And may I submit to you that there has to be some answer for what happens to that immaterial part of you. Does it there? I mean, does it really just get submitted to oblivion and it ends? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so perhaps this morning as we work through this text in 1 Corinthians, you can think through that as well. Now, obviously for years there has been thought about the, Af- I mean, it's always been around. First of all, there's, there's non-Christian perspectives. Number one, there's non-Christian perspectives. Ever heard some of those non-Christian perspectives about what happens to the after death? Well, in some of the earliest surviving literature that we have, uh, dated around 2100 B.C., that text speaks of this, quote, Vermin and worms feeding on the soul, souls becoming bird-like, and the underworld having seven gates with bards, bolts, and demonic gatekeepers. Man, could you imagine that when you're alive as your hope for the future? <clears throat> I'm going to be bird food. In that same book, Williamson writes, he goes on to say, in any case, in these old perspectives, there seems to be no concept of someone being able to escape the grave. How disheartening. Well, you go a little bit later on in history, the Egyptians, we're a little bit more familiar with them. The Egyptians believed in an afterlife. Some even considered them obsessed with death in the afterlife. In 1920, what happened in 1922? Doc, you probably remember. You were a friend of King Tut, okay. Uh, King Tut's tomb was, was, uh, was discovered, allowing us to see in detail that it went, and where the Egyptian god had prepared for the afterlife. Egyptians believed, quote, death was only a transition, not a completion. And it opened, death opened the way to the possibility of, of eternal happiness. When death came, it was only a transition, a transition to another realm where if one... If one were justified by the gods, one would live eternally in a paradise known as the field of reeds. That field of reeds was, here's what it was, was a mirror image of one's life on earth. The aim of every ancient Egyptian was to make that life worth living eternally. And as far as the records indicate, they did their very best at that. Their best life was the life that they were living, and then that afterlife that they would spend in this heaven-like place would be a mirror of their life on earth. So no wonder. Kind of reminds you of Solomon saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's the popular view today of reincarnation, most noticeably held by those of the Hindu and the Buddhist faith. This view, and I'm going to paint broad pictures here. There's differences within these different faiths, the Hindu faith. I'll mention the Muslim faith here in just a minute. There's even differences within the Christian faith. But I'll paint broad pictures here. But in general, this view believes that after death, your soul is, in essence, recycled into another life. The soul, after death, makes a journey to either a temporary heavenly abode before it's, it's reincarnated or to a temporary hell-like place for a punishment of sin before reincarnation. And reincarnation depends upon the good or the bad what? Karma. If you don't think that's a popular view, just listen to the U.S. Open golf winner two weeks ago in his exit interview. 
Then there's the second largest faith in the world, Islam, that believes, that believes much like, similar to the Christian faith, of the separation of the, of the body and the soul after death. The conscious soul goes through a questioning time after death, which some say it's just in my reading is just a formality. But those that answer, and I believe, if I remember right, there's two angels that do the questioning. And those, those people, those souls that answer correctly may go to the garden of delight until the end time where judgment will be. The soul that answers incorrectly goes to a place of punishment until the end. One exception is those that are martyred for Allah. This is the term you probably have heard before, jihad. They avoid the questioning and go directly to the garden straight away. At the end, listen to this, there is judgment, and that judgment is based on good works and devotion to Allah. The good spend eternity in heaven, or in a heaven, which has seven, seven different levels, and the bad go to eternal punishment. As you can see, both ancient and modern, the beliefs kind of run the gamut, don't they? Total annihilation, non-existence, and then perhaps, depending on which level of heaven you can get to, you can spend eternity in some sort of bliss. But secondly this morning, what about the Christian teaching on this? Well, we find that teaching in verse 35 there, where there were some questions that the, this local church had about the afterlife. And what specifically, what happens to the body? Now, without going through this, you can listen to these messages, they're online. We have already discussed bodily resurrection based upon the fact that Jesus himself was raised bodily. So there is and there will be a bodily resurrection. But apparently, and we'll talk more about the, the sequence of events here in just a minute, but apparently from Paul's response in verse 36, calling them foolish persons, some still doubted in a bodily resurrection that it was even possible. But bodily resurrection will occur one day, brothers and sisters. And so Paul here reminds them and he pushes the back against the doubters using the analogy of a seed to help them explain. In verses 36 through verse 38, Paul teaches them that, the dead, that dead things, like a seed, can come to life and have a form. For instance, a tomato seed, it's dead. You plant it, and what does it do? It comes to life and it gains a form. Matter of fact, it has a very unique and a variety of forms, right? It looks green, and then it gets these yellow flowers, and then it pops out green again, and then it turns red, if it's a red, a big better boy or something like that. You plant an apple seed, and the tree starts to grow, and then the fruit. The point is... He uses the analogy that dead things, like a seed, can come to life and have a form. And then, in verses 38 to verse 41, Paul uses another analogy. I think one commentator explains these few verses really well. He says this, God designs bodies to flourish in diverse places and ways, whether bodies on earth, like human bodies or animal bodies, as it mentions in the text, or bodies in heavens, like in the heavens, like sun, the moon, and the stars. If God designs what he creates to flourish where it exists, it is reasonable then, reasonable then for him to design the resurrected corpses of believers to flourish in his future kingdom, end quote. As verse 42 through verse 50 
describe in great detail. You see, friends, the Bible teaches us that someday our bodies will be resurrected from the grave and, and the dust that they have returned. But what about the rest of the story? I mean, we've gone through that part this morning, or the, in the past weeks, where we know that there will be a great bodily resurrection of our bodies that are in the grave. But what happens right after death? What happens in the time between that, whenever that great resurrection happens? What ultimately happens? Well, let's start at the end, because that's where the text leads us. In the end, we'll have a body that is eternal. Verse 42. A body that is glorious, meaning it is characterized by splendor. It's a majestic body, verse 43. I don't know about you, but the older I get, this body is, is, le- is le- more or less and less majestic. You know? It's harder and harder, right? You get tired a little bit easier, you walk up the stairs, and you're like, I mean, I'm only 46, and I'm still like, I- I'm like, okay, someday I'm getting a house with a bedrooms on the first floor. <laughs> Someday, verse 43 tells us is that we're going to have a body that is, not, that is characterized by splendor. It's majestic. Verse 43 says that we're going to have a body that is raised in power, not one that suffers from injury or illness or that fatigue I just mentioned. And it is a body that is spiritual. Now, when it says spiritual here in the text... It doesn't mean spiritual in the sense of no physical body. That's not what it's talking about here. And we know that from the example of Jesus and other texts, that there is a physical body. But spiritual in the sense of a body that is supernatural and in spirit empowered, not suffering from the effects and the pull of a sinful nature. You know, Romans 7 talks about that. Hey, I wanted to do what was wrong. or I didn't want to do what was wrong, but I found myself doing what was wrong. Remember Paul? I talk about that great schizophrenic Paul, right? He, he wants to do what's right, but he doesn't do it. And he doesn't want to do what's wrong, but he finds himself doing it. He's pulled in both directions. Someday, that's not going to have a pull on us any longer. In short, we have bodies that are suited to our life here and now. These bodies that we have here. But someday, we will receive a superior, supernatural, spiritual, physical body for which we all look forward to. Don't we? And some of you right now in life more than others. I hope you're looking forward to that day. Are you? Verse 51 and verse 52 tells us that day, that, that day is expected to come at an unexpected time. You know why this, friends, if you think about this, you know why the Christian perspective, why the Christian view, the Christian teaching really is the best? Because it proves that God is God. If you think about it just for a second, some of those, and I just painted broad strokes with those others, but could you think about being in that ancient culture and thinking, hey, look, look, someday my soul, my body is just going to turn into bird food. Then what kind of God creates a body that he cannot rescue from the effects of sin? What kind of God allows you to be reincarnated or recycled into something else? And depending on good or bad karma, it could be, not a human, it could be an animal the next time. I mean, what kind of God cannot? Is, is that God that can't do, is he an all-powerful God? The answer would be no. If he can't conquer the power and the penalty of sin, even over our physical bodies, is he really God? He's not. But the Bible teaches us 
and verses like we look at there towards the end where Doc read, where, where is the sting of death? Where is the victory? There is none. Even physically, our bodies will be resurrected and there'll be superior, supernatural spiritual bodies that we'll have someday. I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? These verses, and the text doesn't address this, but the verses also bring up about questions. It starts there at the end. But what about before we get those final bodies, before that resurrection time? There's really a difference of opinion, even within Christian circles, exactly how this happens. But this is what I believe we read out of Scripture. At death, your body, the physical body, goes to the grave and simply starts to decompose. After the fall, God says to Adam in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for Dust you are, for uh, from dust you are, and to dust you shall return. As part of the consequences of sin, the physical body will just die. Solomon reflects on, on this in Ecclesiastes 12, and he says, And the dust returns to the ground from whence it came, and the spirit returns to, to God who gave it. Again, the body returns to dust. Now, the only way that that doesn't happen is if you are alive when Jesus returns. Instead of experiencing physical death, you are immediately taken from this life into the next, where you're given that supernatural, spiritual um, uh, body. But until, so you, you say, well, where does the, verse 51, verse 51 in our text here, not only verse 51, but Revelation 16, Matthew 24, and 1 Thessalonians 5 teach us that someday at the second coming of Jesus, we who are alive and remain will be caught up with him to spend eternity. Somehow, in some way, are alive, these bodies, still bodies that are decomposing, in a sense, right? Even though we're alive. Still bodies that are dying will be caught up and will be translated uh, spiritually, just like those who will be resurrected out of the grave. Now, your body will be resurrected. But secondly... And Ecclesiastes chapter 12 mentions this. What about the spirit that's within you? What happens to the spirit after you die? That immaterial part of you. Now, in the scripture, and I use these words synonymously, as I understand scripture, sometimes I simply believe that there is a, there, um, there's a body, there's an immaterial and a material part of human, of each human. Some people will say that there's the body and the soul and the spirit. They'll think there's two different parts. I just simply, as I understand it best, I think sometimes those words are used synonymously, and so I see an immaterial and a material part of man. The material part of the body goes to the grave, it decomposes until when? Until that great resurrection that we've talked about, until we get that body happens sometime in the future when Jesus comes back. But what about the soul, or the immaterial part, the spirit, if you will? Let me read for you Luke chapter 16 that addresses this. Listen carefully. Luke 16 Starting in verse 19, the Bible says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man whose name was Lazarus. And Lazarus was covered with sores. All that Lazarus desired to be, he just desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And 
the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, that is the rich man who was in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side or next to him. And he called out and he said, Abraham, have mercy on me and, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and, and just cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, oh, remember, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, like manner, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. What we see here is that at death, this beggar, this one, this with sores, this man was named Lazarus, was at the side of Abraham after death. And here's what I believe that this teaches us. When we look at all of the different texts together, here's what I believe the Bible teaches about what happens one millisecond after you die. The believer's soul at physical death is present in heaven. This is why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that for the believer, the spirit returns to the God who gave it. This is what I believe Jesus means when he said to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, then he, said, uh, then he said, Jesus, the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and he said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul records, I think, the same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says, yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Or that same verse, you possibly have heard this older interpretation, older English interpretation of it, but just as accurate, it says, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. As I understand it, we are in the presence of Jesus when we die. Our souls are in the presence of Jesus, and they wait the great resurrection of the body, the body that turns to dust, why, if they exhume a body that's been in the and I, I think the, uh, the average, the, the, about the average decom decomposition, including bones for a human body, is about 20 years. That when, if they were to try to exhume that, there's nothing there. Why? Because it's returned to dust. That there'll be that great resurrection someday in the second coming of when Christ comes, that that soul that is with Jesus and that body that is in the grave, those bodies will be resurrected and be reunited with that supernatural, spiritual, physical, translated, glorified body, as we say. And then what do we do? Those end times events happens, and then as Revelation 21 describes, we'll spend eternity in those bodies with that, with that soul, with a new heaven and a new earth. That's what happens, I believe, the Bible teaches when you die. Ryan's soul is with Jesus right now. His body might be in the grave, but one day those will be resurrected. Bob Carlson, we were talking about him this morning in Life Group. One day his body might be in the grave, but his soul is alive and well and present with Jesus. And one day those will be reunited for eternity to spend eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. Is that not a hopeful thing, friends? Matter of fact, I think these aching bodies actually can give us hope because we know there's something better that's coming. 
But you know what? Luke 16 also describes us and, or teaches us about unbelieving souls too. There are those like this rich man, souls that have found their value and their worth and their faith in things outside of Jesus. You ever wonder why in the story that Lazarus has, Lazarus has a name and Abraham has a name, but then this other guy's just called the rich man? I think the reason for that is because that was where he found his value and worth. It was in his riches, and that was his reward. He got what he wanted. And there are those in this culture today and those in the past where their souls have found value and worth and faith outside of Jesus. And this text describes that man's soul, his presence, in verse 23, to be Hades. Now it does say, dip his finger and touch it to my tongue there. So there is this some sort of body and soul waiting for this man and his body and his soul in this thing called, this place called Hades. Now let me read to you Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. And I think this will tie up uh, some, some thoughts about this. Revelation 20 and verse 14 says, Then death and Hades, that place that is mentioned in Luke 16, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Friends, how I understand the Bible to teach these two passages then is this. There is for an unbeliever this intermediate place, this intermediate state where the spiritual man and the physical man of, uh, resides in anguish, as Luke 16 teaches, until the time that God sees fit for the second coming to happen. After which the judgment will come and Revelation 20 says that those after judgment who are found without faith in Christ, that death in hell or death in Hades, this place, wherever this place is, that these unbelievers are, will be thrown into the final place of destruction and judgment for unbelievers called the lake of fire, along with Satan, the evil angels, and all the demons. And that will end as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24 intimates. And so Paul says to these doubters, he says, listen, there really is going to be a physical resurrection of the body someday. Reunited with the soul to spend eternity somewhere forever. But you know, and you might say, well, I think maybe the body and the soul for the Christian is together just like the, the unbeliever after that. That's fine. But do you know what's more important than the what? It's the How? More important than the what happens is the how. That is, how can anyone know for sure that someday they'll spend eternity at the presence of God in a place we call heaven? That's way beyond our wildest dreams. How can you know? And Paul answers that question time and time again throughout this letter, and he does it again in verse 57. He says in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, God gives us the victory. That is, he conquers death. He conquers both spiritual and physical death through the person and the work of Jesus. You can't make yourself righteous with God. You cannot do it on your own. You can't earn it. You can't make it yourself. You have to trust in Christ alone. 
Those other faiths that I mentioned, they might differ. We might have a better picture. The Christian picture gives us more hope. But what's even more important about that, and some of them look kind of similar to the Christian faith, but what's even more important about that is how do you get to spend eternity? How do you get to spend eternity in the, you ever seen the movie Gladiator? The Greco-Roman world believed in the, I think the Elysian Fields was, was their God or their place of heaven. At the end of the movie in Gladiator, you remember uh, Maximus, he's there and he's dying. And you see him floating across this field. And he gets to this door and he opens the door and what's there? His wife and his son are waiting for him in this wide open field with a, about, how do you get there? How do you get to the seventh heaven in the, uh, the Islamic faith? How, how do you get to be reincarnated? You get to, in the Buddhist faith or the Hindu faith, how do you get to be reincarnated into something? How? You know what all of their faiths are based on? Every one of them is based on works. What you do. My friend then, the question is, what is enough? And is the quality of what you do good enough? Because I don't know about you. Man, there's, there's things in life that I love. I mean, growing up, I loved basketball. I would spend hours, but there was always a guy better than me. Always, there's always tons of guys better than me. I love golf. There's always my brother. I love fishing. You know, there, there is always, there's always the one that no, they, they might not even like fishing, but they catch something every time. How is, is it good enough? Do we do it good enough? There's always someone... How, do we, how can we ever know for sure? You can't. If it's based on works, you cannot. But faith in Christ tells us if we trust in Christ alone, then we can be made righteous without. We get that gift of righteousness, and it's his righteousness that's good enough. That's how we can know. My friend, the what is good, and it's fun, and it's hopeful for us to think about the what as believers, but the more important question is how. And there are many here in this room that would love to show you how if you would just ask. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're trusting in something outside of Christ, you know what, I wouldn't worry so much about the how and what happens to your body as the, or, or the what as much as the how. And we'd love to tell you about that today. Let's close in prayer this morning.